Hello, everyone. Good morning. How's everybody doing? So we're glad you're here. Thanks for being here. Um, welcome to any visitors um, that are here. We're glad you're here. Um, so I think we're either, it's in the back, I think, our visitors list. Um, yes. So anytime if you want or after church, you can go there and uh, sign, sign up your name, email address, We'll get you set up for um, a newsletter um, so you can get updates about small groups or events or anything that's that's going on with with uh, with our church. Um, and then today we're having a workshop for you adults or anyone that's I guess really looking for a job or that um, needs some tips on how to interview well or updating a resume, um, all that stuff. Um, and even just like choosing a job as well. Um, if you're having a hard time with that, we're going to have a workshop today um, at the ranch. Pretty sure that's the ranch. And um, pretty sure you guys bring your own food. I don't think there's going to be food provided. Yeah, so bring your own food. Um, and that'll be at 1.15. So you guys have plenty of time to get food and hang out and all that stuff and, and head, the, head there. Ah, luncheon. For you graduates who I think just graduated, yeah. So um, February seventeenth, that is like three weeks from now, four weeks from now, um, three weeks from now, I guess. Um, yeah. So this is just for people who just uh, who are you know obviously just graduated and just want to hang out or um, get to know each other more, um, and also maybe just uh, learn how to not learn how to, but just like talk about how. You can be more invested in the church and uh, in our community. And then, yeah, so for anyone else who is not a visitor, feel free to, um, if you want to get more updates on the church, um, uh, sign up for a newsletter. I'm going to pray for the offering. Uh, offering basket goes across each, each aisle, um, so don't mess it up. Um, so, yeah, uh, God, you're good. Um, you're really good to us, and uh, we know that, that you love us, and um, open up our hearts and, and our minds today to, um, to the message that we're going to hear today. Um, I just uh, ask that you um, speak to us in whatever way that you will, um, and uh, that, you, that we'd be guided by your Holy Spirit, um, and that we would have questions and um, God, that you would uh, lead us uh, into whatever worship that you want, um, if that's singing or, you know, talking to people or, um, you know, just lead us to, lead us to your people um, through your message today. And uh, I pray for um, open hearts um, uh, and minds in, in our offering, and God, that uh, this is your money. Um, that you have freely given to us as a gift, and I uh, pray that we would use that to um, advance your kingdom and um, and to reach those people that need you. We love you. Amen. Uh, did you guys have a great time at winter camp last weekend? Anybody want to share anything? For those of you who don't know, our college students were uh, all out at uh, Sky Ranch in Van, Texas with... Uh, 
a variety of other, I guess, 10 or 11 other campus ministries. And so uh, and they had John Stackhouse, which uh, comes from Regent, and many of us have read some of his stuff or heard some of his um, uh, different uh, sermons and, uh, and classes. So anyway, do you guys have anything you particularly want to share with the uh, body this morning? I'd hate to miss an opportunity if you've got something to really challenge us with or share personally from your experience at winter camp. Those of us who are lame don't go, and uh, so we love to just live vicariously through you. Sure. Great. Yeah. Focusing on what matters, uh, saying no to some things, very important stuff. Well, I appreciate all the you guys who uh, made that happen, whether that's just, uh, you know, you went and were a part of that, uh, or uh, behind the scenes, those intern staff, things like that. So we really do appreciate that. That's a pretty important time each year. And hopefully it's refreshed you and prepared you for uh, the semester ahead. So every beginning semester, what we normally do is preach two sermons on kind of the vision and mission of our church. And that's just become pretty common ever since the leadership conference where we heard someone speak about the importance of reminding the community of your vision and your mission. And so um, Leslie and I are going to do that for the next couple of weeks, but we're going to do it in a little bit of a strange style. We're transitioning from our sermon series last semester about uh, proclaiming the gospel in images and stories. And so Leslie and I are going to present the vision and mission of our church in story form, okay? So today and to, uh, next week, that's what we're going to do. And then on February 10th, we will hit the ground running with Romans and politics, okay? Romans and American politics. And so if you don't know, that's going to be the sermon series for the semester. Uh, we'll be covering a variety of different uh, issues related to the difficult book of Romans. If you've started, uh, you know just how difficult Romans is. Uh, we've suggested listening to it because sometimes that can be helpful. Uh, it would make just sort of a side note, and that is if you're listening while doing dishes or, I mean, driving's probably okay, but like while doing any other task that's not kind of mindless. Not that driving is mindless, but um, anyway. Uh, it, it might not be as helpful. So, you know, I know it's really hard for you to sit down, but for me, I had to just sort of sit down and listen to each of these chapters at a time. Over the course of the series, we'll break it up into one chapter each week and one political issue each week. All of this is pinned on the top of our Facebook page, so if you're interested in uh, offering feedback or asking specific questions, we'll have some worship activities uh, for you by the beginning of that series that you can submit, either anonymously or not, online. And uh, that way we can incorporate those into our worship so we're not just sitting here singing the entire time, but we're engaging in some things that are thoughtful throughout the week. Yeah, Melissa. Okay, great. Yeah, so that's in, on the newsletter too. Uh, so that'll be, that'll be awesome. Also, we put a um, little survey, take it like five minutes on the church page, and that is for a potential pastoral training cohort, whatever, I don't, naming things is so lame. Um, one of my favorite things in joys in ministry is naming things so awfully and terribly that uh, no one will ever wonder if we spent more than like a minute trying to come up with the name. That's why our leaders are chulas uh, and not anything else. Um, so anyway, uh, the pastoral uh, training program is really going to be pretty specific, but it's basically kind of like a focus apprenticeship for people who work full time. And so uh, whether you're interested in doing that or not doesn't really matter. The questions are aimed at anybody and everybody to tell us, even if you're not interested, what would you like to see us cover? What is it that you want from your pastoral leadership that you might not be getting? What are some things that you really appreciate that you want to tell us about? What are some topics we ought to offer? So please do that. Uh, we have only have 26 responses so far, uh, and that's out of the over 1,000 people 
in our churches uh, DFW-wide. So let's, let's get on that, all right? Yeah, just really easy, five minutes, super simple survey, pastoral cohort, boom, done, got it. All right, great. So um, here we go. I am going to talk today about a terrible movie, all right? I was really bored over the Christmas break, super, super bored, as I get when I don't have, like, constant work, and uh, it just appeared that the movie Downsizing came on Hulu for free. Now, if you haven't heard of the movie Downsizing, it's a terrible movie, all right? And it reminds me a lot of the invention of lying uh, in that it has, like, a really great idea but it just fails almost every way of presenting that idea in any way that isn't just like you could read the synopsis and get everything you want from the movie, watch the trailer, and you can get everything you want from the movie, and you really don't need to watch the movie. I'm pretty sure the movie was like a $70,000 budget, and they made like $26 million, or excuse me, $70 million budget. That would be different. Uh, and made like $26 million back. So whoever had that idea totally crashed. And maybe I don't understand how to read those numbers very well, but from what I understand, they didn't make even half of their money back. So, bad movie, all right? Wouldn't encourage you watching it. Uh, although, some movies are so, as we know, in our generation, I think, maybe in particular, that has all these cult favorites that are just terrible movies. Um, as you know, sometimes watching a movie that's so bad is actually incredibly enjoyable, particularly as you think about the movie over and over again. And so, I'm going to give kind of a summary of that movie uh, with the intention of sharing with you what I think is kind of a pretty normal and traditional path of discipleship for pretty much all of us. And so it might seem strange. I'm not going to sermonize. I'm not going to give you points to the sermon. I'm simply going to kind of run through the movie and, uh, you know, however long that kind of takes, hopefully 10 or 15 minutes, we'll see with me, uh, and just point out some sort of points in the movie that reflect or, in my mind, represent the path that all of us take in becoming a disciple of Christ, whether we're not on that path at all or whether we've been on that path for a very long time. And so I want to use that as an opportunity uh, to share that, but primarily I'm just going to be sharing about the movie. Again, I'm not going to be trying to make some real spiritual uh, analogy or something you're going to have to kind of do that in your own mind. So if this seems like a weird sermon where I'm coming up and just basically giving you uh, the synopsis of a movie, that's because that's what I'm doing, all right? Normally, I prepare at least 15 or 20 minutes for my sermon. This morning was more like two or three minutes. So, um, yeah, good for me, right? What do you guys pay me to do, after all? Uh, apparently not speak because, yeah, I'm not earning my money worth. Okay, so Downsizing. Uh, this movie, to give you a quick, I thought about showing some clips, but then I was like, eh, I don't know, I don't really want to show clips, I'll just tell you about it. You can look at clips on your own, that's too much work. Uh, Matt Damon, Kristen Wiig, you would think, boom, right? No. No. Uh, so, the, I, the main idea behind it is simply that they invent this technology where you can shrink people to about four inches tall, and they can live as a four-inch tall person, all right? So there you go. That's literally the synopsis of the movie. I remember when it came out, I thought, oh my gosh, that's so stupid. And there was a couple times I saw it like on Redbox, and I was like, mm, $1.29, a little too much. <laughs> Who's got $1.29 to spend on this movie, you know? Because if I spend $1.29, I'm expecting to get $1.29 worth of entertainment back. If it's already on Hulu, which is uh, my seven-day trial is about to expire, I'm getting it for free. It's a free movie. I know that it's going to be worth the free movie, uh, and it absolutely did not disappoint as a free movie that I watched. <laughs> Can't imagine people who paid like $10 at Alamo Drafthouse uh, 
to uh, watch that or something. Okay, so the movie kind of opens up with uh, Matt Damon at a bar, uh, about to go home to take care of his sick and ailing uh, mother, and he sees on the news this news report of these people being shrunk, right? So they, you know, there's a podium like this, and you know, they reveal we've just made this huge headway uh, into you know, the scientific discovery. They pull up the box, and there is the sort of father who, uh, of, of this scientific discovery, and there he is standing like four inches tall. And of course, the crowd gasps. And, and then they bring in this little roller cart with like 35 other people who are in this little makeshift, uh, you know, stands type thing. And they're all waving, and they're the first like 36 people to ever be uh, shrunk. So it's pretty cool. And of course, you know, this is like big news, right? I mean, obviously this is big news. Public news, news that everybody wants to hear. Everyone's kind of gets excited about. And so, um, you know, uh, the, the scene quickly passes to about 10 years later where that whole thing has kind of become news and interesting, but, you know, it's not that big of a deal anymore because unless you've experienced it yourself or had someone you were close to experience it, it really was just sort of a fad 10 years ago that people heard about and kind of think about every now and again, but it's not really good news anymore or public news. It's just sort of it had happened, right? And so still so few people, it's become normal to hear about it, but not at all normal 10 years later for people to have actually had the procedure to be uh, uh, shrunk. Is that even right? Shranked? Shranked sounds right. <laughs> to be shrankified. And it's not normal. So it's, 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 it's becoming slowly more normal to, to join, but not so much. So then here are uh, Matt and Kristen. I don't know what the character's name are, so I'm just going to go by their personal name as if I know them really well. Um, I have met some celebrities. I'm not going to lie to you on that, okay? <laughs> I will tell you the stories of the celebrities I've met. No big deal. Just talk to me after, okay? Um, Bruce Willis. So no big deal. But... <laughs> Helen Mirren lookalike. No big deal, but, uh, you know, so. Okay. Um, so... They're at their 10-year reunion, kind of talking through things. Uh, uh, Matt Damon is still in his house that he was with or in 10 years ago, where his mother is his mother's house, where she passed away. They're still there. They got all these bills. They apparently are going to get a foreclosure at some point. They're really struggling. He's an occupational therapist. I can't remember what she does in the movie. Um, and uh, I know, it's terrible, I guess, but, you know. Um, so they're at this 10-year reunion, and in comes... This little cart, because I mean, every little person has to have a cart that they like, I guess is, I don't even know if they just have these at all facilities, like a cart for little people. I don't know if it's an accommodations thing or not. But they've got a little cart that they're coming in, and they've got their little kind of uh, living room set up, and they roll in two people from Matt and Kristen's class that have shrunk themselves. And they're apparently good friends with them, right? And I can't remember the actors. They're both, or the guy in particular is that actor. For, okay, it doesn't matter. Don't get caught up. And so, you know, I mean, of course, everyone is so interested. But while all the people come and just take a quick look because they're interested in seeing tiny people, they don't eventually stick around for too long. And so it sort of uh, cuts to Matt talking with his friend about the sort of benefits of this. And I mean, anybody who lives in leisure land, and now is the time, I guess, to communicate that leisure land is like the largest of these small people communities, okay? And it's huge, and you can go visit it, and it's like a tourist attraction, you know, seeing all these people in their kind of little uh, places uh, and doing what they do, talks about all the appeals of Leisureland. I mean, it's like he's a salesman, all right? He's totally talking about like, oh, yeah, you know, um, money is worth like 100 times what it is there. There's these commercials. 
Uh, you can get a huge house if you're a poor person, and all your money like translates because it's just, you know, uh, the currency, uh, you, just everything is smaller. Everything, you know, whether it's diamond jewelry, whatever you, you want, everything's sort of better here. Um, but, you know, what's interesting about the film is they go back and forth between kind of like hinting that there are some noble purposes for shrinking yourself, like, you know, maybe what Josh would do for like climate change and all that stuff, you know. You know, you put like a smaller footprint and all that, you know, you know, Caper's going to be the first one, you know, to be joining that whole club. Um, and so they go back and forth between these noble causes for shrinking yourself and then these causes that you can kind of tell are really the causes people want. They want a bigger house, they want more money. No one really has to work in leisure land because like you just don't need that much money. So whatever you can sell all your assets and have some money, you could just sort of chill. And so you play golf and there's this really funny um, commercial uh, in the show that you can watch and it's about this girl who buys like all this diamond jewelry from some person I've never even, or some company I've never heard of, which shows how high class I am when it comes to jewelry and spent like $83, okay? And she talks about her day, she went to the spa, she played golf, blah, blah, blah. Or maybe he played golf, I don't know, that sounds more reasonable. Um, <laughs> I tried. So, Matt, Kristen, they decide they're going for it. Why not? Downsize, We'll have more money, we'll have more comfort, we don't have to work. Sure, it's an irreversible decision, but like, man, it just seems like the answer to all of the problems they have. And so they're with some friends at a bar the night before they're going to get shrunkified, okay? And some guy's a little bit tipsy over there, and he starts insulting them about how, you know, well, yeah, sure, you, don't have, a, uh, you, don't, you have a small footprint, but you guys don't pay anything into the economy. You know, it's basically just a, a waste of a life, you know, you know uh, why do we even let these people live and all this other stuff? And there's this kind of conflict there. And so you can kind of tell they're a little bit torn between, you know, doing this and not. And then the next morning, they show up at the, the office to get, you know, shrunk, which the whole process of shrinking is really funny. Because every time a little person gets moved, there's like a spatula. They couldn't come up with like a better idea. It's just literally a spatula that they f put underneath them. And you know, at any moment, you're just waiting for one of them just to get kind of, just slam them up, you know, just... <laughs> See what happens, but it doesn't happen ever. Maybe like a parody film or something like that, or you could do it in your own. But they're sitting in front of this nurse, doctor, whatever, and they're being told about all of the things that happen. Like, you've got to get all your fillings out because they can't shrink, like, I guess, metal or something. You know, it, let's not get too scientific about this. Um, it's irreversible. It can never change. Uh, you have, like, a 1 in 300 chance of dying. All of this, like, news that's the truth that, of course, they didn't get in any sales pitch before, kind of comes to them in this moment, and you can just tell they're overwhelmed, she more than him, all right? So it sort of shoots through the process of uh, them shrinking themselves, and, you know, he gets up, kind of wakes up from the slow room, and, uh, and you know, she, he's asking, well, where's my wife? My wife's supposed to be nearby here. You know, what, what's happening here? They give him this phone, and I don't understand the whole voice thing. It seems like... a me talking to a four-inch person it would be too loud. But the voice thing never changes. I don't understand it. That's my one big problem with the whole movie. Uh, is... Anyway, he gets on the cell phone, okay? And she is in the airport bald because she started the procedure but uh, decided to jump out at the last minute and is just telling him, like, hey, I didn't go through with it. I just really didn't think it would it'd be worth it. <laughs> and I really needed to think about my friends and family. And he's like, I am your family. Like, I shrunk myself. And you decided to, uh, you know, so you see this huge decision, and it obviously splits up 
the bonds that they have, the relationship they have. One person makes the decision, and you kind of tell in this moment, um, you know, these joint decisions can't be forced between people. Uh, people have to really be on the sort of same side uh, to figure this stuff out. Uh, you, you can't just sort of expect that this happens. So then the movie sort of starts to get kind of like, I don't know, goes down a little bit. Dull, thank you, Dad. I appreciate that. But your idea of dull is uh, anything less than like all the Mission Impossible movies. So, <laughs> so my mind is like dull because I just fall asleep. It's just nonstop action. Uh, and close-ups of Tom Cruise, which isn't terrible. But uh, So... Uh, you see him, of course, over the course of the next year, he kind of works out the divorce settlement. Well, he's got to give half of his money, so he's not rich anymore. He's working at Land's End as a customer service representative, which itself is really funny, talking to people about their clothing options and things like that. He's obviously super depressed about the whole situation. It's no good. Uh, it kind of reminds me a little bit, and this is a really terrible analogy, but I thought about it in the shower yesterday. Showers and naps are a little bit like life, right? Starts off pretty amazing. Like a shower, a nap, those first moments are so good. It ends terribly, right? Shower and nap. Well, you gotta wake up from a nap or wake up from a uh, sleep. It's just painful. The morning in particular, nap, or you get out of the shower, you're cold, it's really painful. I mean, shower, I, it just, when it ends, it's just, it ends, and it's just, it's something gets cut off from you. I mean, if I was in leisure land, I would definitely have heated floors, so that way I could, you know, walk on to and still be warm, uh, but, you know, but then, you know what, both of them in the long run are pretty refreshing. <laughs> all right, that's all I got. <laughs> this is a good analogy for this movie uh, in some ways, so... Yeah, no, but life is kind of that too. <laughs> anyway, um, so you see him a year later, and he's dating. He's kind of on this date. He's, he's kind of back into the dating scene, and the date is just miserable. It's just boring, and it's forced, and it's painful. And all the while, I can't remember his name, but I think it's Christopher Waltz. Yeah. Is he like the best actor? It, like everything he does, I love. Well, he's this like party animal, okay? And so he lives in this huge penthouse above and uh, the Matt Damon character hates, hates having to listen to him party all the time. And you kind of get this idea that it, some of it's just annoyance, but a lot of it too is that, you know, I think he's kind of wishing he was uh, living in another life. So he goes and knocks on the door during this date, because he really just wants to get up from the date. And, you know, he's, he's, he says, you guys, you got to calm down. You've got to be quiet. Actually, I think he yells it from the balcony up a lot. And then Christopher comes down and he's like, why don't y'all come up to this, you know, party? This will be so much better for you. Uh, than what you're doing now. And he's like, no, 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 this is, this is what I want to be doing. I want to be on this boring date. Uh, and so at the end of the day, you know, trying to kind of take things to the next level, which is what advice he had gotten recently. He's like, well, you know, you said you had some kids, right? She's like, well, I just have one kid. He's like, well, I'd like to meet your kid. And she's like, mm, I don't know about that. <laughs> kind of signaling that he, she really wasn't into a him. So instead of just normally having a conversation, he runs away completely from her, Okay and goes up to this party. He, I mean, he's been rejected, he's in desperation so much that he's finally at the point where he's ready to just try anything different. And he brings this uh, normal-sized rose, which in his world is like a giant rose, right? And he brings it to the party, and you know, the party is just this amazing, crazy party. It doesn't even make sense, all the things that are going on, but if you're a little person, you could have like an entire bottle of vodka and like swim in it, right? So there's those kinds of things happening in the party, all right? I'll just leave the rest to your imagination. 
Um, apparently, this party animal guy deals in black market goods, okay? Black market goods are pretty much any good that you wouldn't be able to get as a small person because they're either not allowed to shrink or whatever, things that you miss from your life as like a large person. So he's got a lot of money, uh, needless to say, and so uh, Matt Damon sort of builds this relationship with him. And again, uh, you can tell in this relationship, the character is only interested in this relationship because it's just something different than what he's experienced so far, Okay? It's a desperation thing. He's lived so long in this, just going to get married, live with one person, kind of play the game of being a, you know, an adult, and he just sort of like falls into this place. This guy sort of pays for him, so he doesn't have to he, uh, be in his job anymore, and so he's just sort of one of his roadies, all right? And so this life sort of works uh, for a while. All right, so then one morning when he's hungover like the rest of his roadies all around like a rock scene... This lady walks in, all right? And this lady has one leg, and, but she's got a, pr- a prosthetic, and it's like a terrible prosthetic. Like, imagine making your own prosthetic leg, and uh, that's about what she's working with, all right? And he remembers, and earlier in the scene, there's this, commer- or there's this uh, news story about these uh, 13 Vietnamese women uh, who were shrunk against their will and brought back to the U.S. so they could work at a sweatshop, which actually doesn't make much sense, but I think it was on like microelectronics or something. And they were brought back in a TV box, and like most of them died. She was the only survivor, but her leg was crushed, and so they had to do this uh, prosthetic kind of thing. So yeah, that's kind of sad, right? Yeah, the whole weird thing. So anyway, listen, I'm telling you, I mean, you could tell from my synopsis of this movie, it's not a good movie. I mean, I, I warned you ahead of time, right? You guys know that, right? All right, good. I'm just making sure. So anyway, so she's cleaning the house. Well, so again, in his desperation, he remembers, you know, of course, back to being an occupational therapist. His whole goal was to help people work better. And he sees this girl, and he goes, wait a second, you're the girl from the TV box. And, you know, in her broken English, she kind of says, yes, blah, 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 get out of my way. Um, let me clean this house. And so he kind of corners her in a room where she's taking medication, which apparently she's stealing medication. And you're like, why is this girl stealing medication? Is she crazy, whatever, blah, blah. And he's like, I can fix your leg. And she's like, what? And he's like, I can fix your leg. I'll just fix your leg for you. And she's like, I don't know about that. I don't have time. I don't want to deal with you. Uh, Eventually, he talks her into it, and she takes him back to her home, which is like on the outskirts of Leisureland. And I'm talking like on the wall, like a little mouse hole under the wall, and there's like a card box slum, and all of these people live in a, a slum in Leisureville, which no one in Leisureville even, I think, recognized that there were slums. And actually, as the camera footage uh, pans out, you see like less nice, less nice, less nice, less nice homes, and then her home is in this like, you know, slum uh, high-rise card box or something. And so she, uh, there's a lot of actually funny moments in this, this scene, but I can't show you because it would take too long. Um, she has this roommate, the roommate has cancer, she's dying, uh, she, he realizes she's just trying to give this medication to this uh, um, roommate of hers, which of course she, she actually gives too much medication, kills her, but um, <laughs> in the movie, it's funny, all right? I, she was in pain. It was going, I know, a couple of you who know the scene know it's just funny, and you know I just ruined it, but it was actually really good. Well, as it turns out, this lady takes care of all the people in the slum, no matter what the condition they have, whatever, she goes around uh, to these people and just helps them, one person after another. And so all the while, Matt Damon is trying to got to get her leg fixed, but she's too active, too busy to ever give him a chance. So he keeps having to come back, come back. Well, when he finally does it, 
He actually doesn't do a good job and he accidentally breaks the one leg that she has. <laughs> you know, this should be a lesson in things that sound good in your head. You know, you really don't quite understand how they're going to come across until you start talking about it to someone. <laughs> or maybe I just have an incredibly sick sense of humor. Who knows? Well, this puts him in a pretty bad uh, uh, situation, right? Because now all of a sudden, he feels like he owes her. He doesn't have any money. Uh, the wealthy patron guy that sells the black market deal, uh, he just thinks it's funny that, that Matt Damon hangs around this girl. Like, he's just like, why do you always you know, jettison anything good in your life? Things aren't going well, blah, blah, blah. Well, now he feels like in order to help her in her leg, he needs to work with her. So he becomes a cleaning lady dressed in a lady outfit, more or less, and goes around with these Vietnamese ladies to rich people's houses in leisure land to work off his debt of trying to get her a better leg, okay? Um, yeah, it's really great. Uh, yeah, I want to watch it again, right? <laughs> you know, normally when you mention stuff like this, people are like, I'm going to go out and watch that, and I think everyone in this room has decided there's no way they want to watch this movie. Again, though, it's while you're sitting and thinking about it that there's just such, just such funny stuff. Okay, great. Uh, but again, it's, it's through this conflict, both with this wealthy patron and the, the, this lady that uh, uh, he's trying to help, that he gets invited into doing all of these different things that he would have never found himself. And it's kind of like a, a black hole because he gets further and further and further in. And yet what's really interesting about this point in the movie is he's got more friends more purpose, and more uh, actual happiness and even exhaustion for the right reasons in his life than he ever has had up to this point. And so you see this sort of growing, everything around him is falling apart and looks like it's going bad, and yet in terms of the most important things in terms of purpose in life and human relationships, things are actually getting better for him. And it, is someone clapping or? <laughs> Whatever, yeah, I guess, maybe. Okay, so I'm almost done, guys. So you can tell he bites off more than he, he, he can chew here. I mean, this lady is, you know, is running him ragged. He's cleaning houses. Um, he's gone the whole different direction than he thought his life was going to go. So he gets the wealthy patron to kind of work up this deal, all right? And this wealthy patron, he, he goes everywhere dealing in black market goods, whatever else. Well, remember the original scientist little guy on the podium? Well, he's from Norway, and he invites this wealthy patron to come out to Norway, mostly to give them vodka and things like that, but also to exchange some things that they're going to need for this big project they have in mind. Well, so the patron says, you know, listen, um, to, and tells us to the Vietnamese lady with one leg, we're going to have to take Matt with us, okay? We just really need him for this trip, like really need him. And of course, the whole idea is to get Matt out of this cleaning service, and into this trip that's going to actually give him a chance to rest. And this is the best scene of the movie by far. And so, you know, he, 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 he kind of, they all sort of are in on this, and they think it's, you know, going to go well. And then she kind of pauses, thinks of that, and she goes, okay, I'll go too. <laughs> and they're like, what? No, we don't, you need to stay here. You need to run your business. Who else is going to run it? She says, no, 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 I've been training people to run it for me. Uh, as it turns out, about 10 years ago, or I think at this point it's maybe only six years ago, when she lost her leg, the main scientist from Norway had sent her a letter begging her to come out because he felt so bad that his technology was used uh, in this really awful way to like force her to be, you know, strangified. And so she decides she's going on the trip with them 
total reversal and, and backfire. Uh, but anyway, uh, they go on this trip. Now, I don't want to ruin too much of the end of the movie, but I don't think anyone's going to really care. Uh, yeah, no, everyone's like, I am not watching this. I really thought I actually made it sound better than it, uh, than it is. I, really? I mean, yeah, you, you think about it. Yeah, she limps a lot. <laughs> Spoken like a true able-bodied person. <laughs> Can't limp with one leg. Okay. Um, so, the la- the pretty much the last major kind of scene of the movie is when... Uh, you know, uh, so the Vietnamese lady, the black market guy, uh, dealer guy, and uh, Matt Damon come to this community in Norway, and these people are crazy, okay? Let's just be honest. They're like cultish kind of mentality, right? Because these are the original ones. They're the purest ones in some way. And so they're nice and friendly, but they have devised this plan to dig themselves into the core of the earth for 4,000 years so as to maintain uh, human species, because they believe the world is about to just completely blow up due to global warming, okay? And so, so they're friendly and nice and great. Well, all of a sudden, Matt Damon's character has this light bulb moment where he's like, this is my purpose in life. All along was to bring me to this moment to hang out with these cultish weirdos to go and be one of these original colonists that will at some point come back and repopulate the earth. I mean, he is just, it is his mission to go on this trip. But he's built this great relationship with this lady and uh, this, uh, you know, black market guy, and he's actually living with purpose. He goes around with her not only to, to clean, but also to uh, help all these people in the slums. And they're just looking at him like, this isn't your purpose. Your purpose is you've already found it. It's not some glorious announcement to go be a part of some core original colonist kind of people. It's to, you've already found this purpose in your life. It's just to do what you've already been doing and actually be devoted to it. And so at the end of the movie, he's going down the tunnel asking about how long the walk is. And it's like an 11-mile walk. And you kind of don't know if he's really discovered that this is his purpose, it's not his purpose in life, or he really just doesn't want to walk 11 miles. <laughs> They're going to be in this little bubble for like as long as his life, you know, and, and 4,000 you know, years of other generations, and yet the 11 miles. So he comes running out the door, and you know, the end scene is that he's back with his friends with hopefully a renewed vision of what his purpose is in, in life. And that's the movie. Beautiful, right? Some of you are like, what was the point of that whole thing? Well, if you don't know, I don't care. What? Yes, you're right. That is the major takeaway from this, uh, this story. So let me just summarize what, what I kind of got from this. Uh, 11 miles. <laughs> it, to answer your question, yes, it's 11 in our miles. 
Someone who would literally not want to walk 11 miles, which might take what? I don't know actually how long that takes. <laughs> a couple hours? I mean, yeah, this was going to take them days of walking to get there. <laughs> okay. So let me back this up and, and let me tell you how I, I kind of thought about this as uh, the cost of discipleship. Number one, when we first hear about the good news, it's very much a, a big deal. We think about all the possibilities and all the things that could change, even if you think about this in a historical perspective. The fact that these early Christians would be announcing a whole new way of life that made everybody from every social class, every nationality, every religion on the same uh, plane and would give them this empowered and transformed life was an amazing thing. But it wasn't ultimately until any of them met someone who had gone through with their commitment that that news had become real news to them. And that's so important when we think about the gospel is plenty of people have heard of Christianity and they've heard about the whole idea of what it means to be a disciple of Christ and yet so few have actually experienced a disciple in their lives. Had one talk to them, had one explain anything, got to see their life lived out in front of them. And it's not until we make those appeals that that decision becomes truly good news to anybody. And that's really important point here. When people do decide finally to make a decision, whether that's us or not, a lot of times it is based on a personal relationship we've had. We've seen this good news work out in the life of an individual. And this is why so many of those pot shot, kind of quick uh, you know, 70s type rationalistic approaches to evangelism where we try to scare someone into heaven uh, or, you know, uh, browbeat them objectively into it just doesn't really work because that news doesn't actually filter into the person's heart as good news until they see it in the life of another person. It doesn't become real. It can't be argued against when you actually watch it in the life of another person. And that's why it's so important for us, as I talked about two weeks ago, to talk to people about the good news. And certainly it is important to live it out in front of them, but many of them don't even understand what they're seeing. If anything, it seems insulting to their way of life, which we talked about, if you can't explain it and talk about it in a way that really makes sense and brings life. And, uh, you know, yeah, sure, you've probably heard that Francis of Assisi quote, you know, share the gospel and when necessary, use words. Number one, that's terrible context because he really didn't say that. And number two, that's a really lazy and cowardly way to think about sharing the gospel with people. It's one that I've bought into a lot, and it's one that naturally I pretty am okay with because I'm cool with just going and sitting next to someone and talking about generally anything other than spiritual issues because it's just easy. And I know that as soon as I open up the door, there's going to be opportunity for rejection and insult and misunderstanding, and yet that's the risk we take, as I talked about two weeks ago, if we truly believe God is working in the life of another person and that he's capable of drawing people to himself. It's the risk we take. Uh, and, uh, and as someone shared this morning, it has very little to do with our skill or ability or know-how and a lot to do with how we treat people. Uh, and unfortunately, so many evangelistic efforts are full of right words and correct thoughts and empty altogether of any kind of human treatment. And that's really unfortunate. But people are torn in their decision, and they ought to come to that point. When we're Christian salesmen trying to make the gospel seem really great and good and happy, and uh, you know, it's only, we're only telling people about the beginning part of the shower or nap, Okay. You can't tell people about that shower and nap if you don't got to tell them. At some point, you got to wake up. 
at some point, you've got to get out of that hot shower, okay? It's not just sitting there. It's just not going to work. Can't happen like that. I thought of another movie, actually, but I'm not going to talk about that one. Uh, Bruce Willis, though. He's kind of my friend, so um, no big deal. We're torn. And if we're not clear to people, particularly as they get closer and closer to thinking about making a commitment to Christ, about just how much you have to sacrifice and just how hard it is, we do a huge disservice. And that's a lot of our evangelistic methods today. It's try to trick people into making a decision so that somehow their soul can be saved without really telling them that if you put half in in this, you're going to get nothing out. It's not half out. It's nothing out. You'd be better just to not do anything at all. Because at least then you'll live in what you think and what is perceived as the freedom of your own thoughts and actions. It splits bonds, right? I mean, you know, as, as hard as it is, the gospel, and Jesus said this in some of his more, you know, difficult uh, lessons, is that ultimately making a commitment to Christ will sometimes split some of the bonds that are most dear to us. And hopefully it splits them so that at some point they get drawn back together. But it doesn't deny the fact that initially that can very much split bonds. You can go in and look even uh, at uh, Paul in Romans, as well, or in 1 Corinthians, as he talks about the idea of a Christian marrying a non-Christian, and you know, coming a Christian after, and all these other things. But it can split these bonds. And that all of us uh, you know, go through a period of wandering and second-guessing our decision. Wondering, was, is th- was, I, was this just a badge? Was just this uh, act of desperation? I made this commitment in the midst of I was uh, hungry for friends. I was wanting purpose in my life. I needed something, and I went down this path, and in reality, I've never really committed to it. So much of the evangelism in our church, guys, is to Christian people who made a commitment to Christ but never really made a commitment to Christ. And I'm not talking about they didn't do the right things to get in the club. I'm talking about that commitment never really seeped through into the experience of uh, their life. That is the major type of, of, of evangelism that we would do in a nation full of Christians. That just makes sense. That's why I talked about the need a couple weeks ago to talk to your neighbors and coworkers and just ask them if they're Christian or not. It gives you a really great understanding of a, a starting place with people. Uh, and it's a pretty simple question. And I think the rules do kind of change in terms of how we talk. And again, it's in those wandering and second guessings that a personal appeal to someone, and sometimes even conflict, gets us back on the right track. It's God putting someone in our lives to give us a sense of this is how life lived right looks like. You're sitting here partying with the black market guy, and in reality, all around you are people who are doing jobs that look lower than you, who actually have purpose and intention in life. And... Those are the people that you just miss over, or maybe they're a sight to you to get an autograph, which is what he does at some point, which is really strange. Uh, at least he doesn't use the TV box. Um, and, uh, but, you know, uh, it's a personal appeal. And sometimes we're least likely to find the kind of purpose that God has for us, or, or we find that purpose in some of the least likely spots. And why is that? Is it because God loves this sort of like, you know, put us into really weird situations? No, it's because all the spots that we're looking for are usually the spots where we want to find something. We want to find God in this spot, in this place, because we still have some kind of control over the environment. And it's in an entirely new sphere where I'm out of control, and in a good way, and uh, out of being able to really um, control and, and uh, decide what happens that God will ultimately uh, help us find uh, the kind of purpose we have. And many of us, of us who've lived that life, particularly with our careers, understand that. 
we think God's going to use us in one field, and then and we get into a completely different field, one we never could have saw ourselves in. Not to say that's everybody, but that happens. And that the conflict of our lives ultimately tests our resolve. How much are we really going to decide to be in this or not? And that at some point in almost every decision we make, that, that path kind of splits, and we get one more renewed opportunity uh, to decide whether we're in this for ourselves or whether we're in it for something bigger. And that, that decision ultimately reinforces itself as the years go on. All right, I'm going to uh, say a prayer here, and we're going to take communion. We take communion openly here, and if you're a Christian, we want you to join with us. We do it, uh, I guess, slightly different, but not too differently. Um, we'll have a couple lines. You'll take a piece of bread, dip it into the juice, and then um, you'll kind of come back to your, your seats, and we'll um, spend some more time in singing and in worship, and, and then we'll finish, uh, finish up. Lord God, thank you for calling us uh, uh, to your purpose and to a life that uh, we could have never really planned or uh, thought on our own, where we just open up our hearts to um, be open and available in our emotions and in our um, moods and will to just notice people around us and to notice where they're at in their path with you, that we would be good at hearing your spirit uh, speak to us about what to say to people, uh, how to be involved, how to speak up, and uh, that you would uh, help us to be unafraid in uh, what we'll receive back, uh, that we can know that what we're doing is ultimately um, in the best interest of those that we speak to, and that even they will notice and recognize that, uh, but maybe later on. Thank you for giving us this ministry and for um, just entrusting us. Uh, there are a few times in my life when I feel as connected to your purpose for me and um, just your mission than when I'm really talking uh, through uh, your purpose and what you've done in my life to another person sitting across from me. I know that's uh, you led, and we just thank you for uh, doing what you've done uh, to allow us into your kingdom, God. We take this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.